Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, issue 11, Moving In. I'm joined by two spooky co-hosts, Ben. Hey, hey, hey. And Ashley. Hey, Ashley. Hello. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown where we let you know who created the issue and the catch-up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue, and we follow that all up with the deep dive, where we really get into everything that happens. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's get going. Ashley, over to you for the rundown. All right. On our team today, we've got writer Neil Gaiman, always. MVP penciler Mike Dringenberg. Inking by Malcolm Jones III. Colorist was Robbie Bush, but my issue is xylenol. Uh, <laughs> letterer. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just so envious about everybody that gets to see the real colors. <laughs> Lettering by John Costanza. Associate editing by Art Young. And then editing, of course, by... Coach Karen Berger. John Costanza, that's a new one. Yeah. I didn't even notice that. No Todd Klein. No Todd Klein. I know. I was shocked too. The betrayal amongst the ranks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for the catch up this week, this is just part two of A Doll's House, which is the second story that we're getting here in the Sandman comic. In the first issue, we were introduced to Rose Walker, Miranda Walker, and Unity Kincaid. Rose, we have learned, is a dream vortex. And we're not 100% sure what in totality that means, but she does seem to have some connection to the dreaming that will be spooled out over time. She has been looking for her younger brother, Jed, and is finally able to get some real boots on the ground action when we leave her at the end of the last episode or the last issue where she is going to Florida to pick up the search whence she may find Jed. Sean, what happened in this week's issue? Whew, okay, there's a lot that happened in this week's issue. All right, so this will take uh, 45 minutes. Apologies. <laughs> So the issue opens with Rose Walker moving into a boarding house in Florida on the search for her younger brother, Jed, who she hasn't seen in seven years. We meet some of the other residents of the house, including Hal, the kind-hearted landlord, the appallingly, terrifyingly normal couple, Barbie and Ken, and the spider women, Chantal and Zelda, who wear matching wedding gowns and veils and have the largest collection of stuffed spiders on the eastern seaboard. We then cut to a strange sequence where we meet Rose's missing brother, Jed. He's in a brightly colored, simply drawn dream world where he's living out a fantasy of flying with these two, like, costume superhero types. Uh, when his hand is tickled by a, quote, spooky bird or spooky, depending on where you want to go with uh, how that was worded. So, spooky bird gets released by a couple of monsters in a hot air balloon. Jed falls and awakens on the floor 
in a dark and dingy basement being threatened by a voice out of frame. We learn he's being abused, forced to live in a cold, dark basement, using the corner of the basement as a bathroom. Uh, except when he sleeps, he visits a magical dream world where he goes on adventures with uh, the Sandman and Lyta. Meanwhile, Rose writes a letter to her mother and grandmother in which she describes each of the house's strange inhabitants, including the unseen lodger Gilbert. She describes Hal as normal until he bursts in the room in full diva mode, complaining about the direction of his drag show. Uh, she goes on to describe what she's found of Jed so far, that their father died in a car accident, which she doesn't seem too sad about. Jed then went to live with their paternal grandfather, who, quote, sounds like a nice old guy, until he too passed away. She also mentions a big black raven that's been hanging outside her window. That raven, we then learn, is Matthew, sent to monitor the dream vortex on behalf of Morpheus, who's busy creating a new nightmare on the shores of Dream. Dream finds that even though Jet is still alive, he's been severed from the dreaming, an act that would require knowledge and power. Morpheus returns to the center of the dreaming to search for the missing Jed. We then meet back up with Rose, who's gone to see Hal's drag show, while she waits for word from the private detectives they've hired to find Jed. Outside the venue, she's attacked by a gang of Florida skinheads, uh, but is re rescued by a massive dude with a cane, overcoat, and hat. That man, it turns out, is Gilbert, the previously unseen roommate and the spitting image of early 20th century author G.K. Chesterton. And if you want to learn a bit more about Chesterton, check out our TV watch-along episode for episode 7, that is, of the TV show. So there's also this brief interlude with the same murderous figure we met last issue, who we find out is the Corinthian, one of the missing nightmares. So while Corey has a snack of eyeballs and a chat on the phone, we learn he'll be attending a special get-together of people with his interests somewhere in Georgia that coming weekend. Creepy. Back in the real world, Rose learns that the private detectives have located Jed, living with some distant relatives on a farm in, uh-oh, also Georgia. Uh, so she and Gilbert hit the road to find him, Rose confident that Jed will be well taken care of. At the end of the issue, we find an enraged Sandman who has learned where Jed is and that the other missing nightmares, Brute and Glob, are responsible for severing him from the dreaming. In the most comic book superhero moment of the entire series, the Sandman puts on his full gear and helm and dramatically declares, I do not know what game they are playing, but I know this. I am angry, Lucian, and it's my move. Well, I think with that, we're going to head to Georgia as well, because that's where all the cool people are going, and we'll be right back. All right, so we are back, ladies and gentlemen, and we are jumping right into our first deep dive topic, courtesy of Sean. You, in your note to me, Sean, you just said sand men? Ah, interesting. Yes, yes. So, we find out, right, in this issue that... There's another guy running around calling himself the Sandman. And he's dressed in a bright, colorful, garish costume. And he's flying around with Little Jed in this very sort of kind of flat, old-fashioned art style. And we're kind of wondering what's going on here. So at this point, you know, we should probably talk about this other character who appears in this sequence as the Sandman. So, you know, if you're reading this at the time you're you're only going to know you know that there's there's for the most readers who you know are approaching sandman 
might be their first comic book, things like that. Like the 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 book is gaining word of mouth. It's bringing in a lot of people who are not necessarily familiar uh, with other DC works. So this is probably fairly meaningless to them, but longtime DC fans may recognize the Sandman of the 1970s there, star of the short-lived Sandman series created by comics legends Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, who we've spent plenty of time with in the past. Uh, so you know Jack Kirby's story, you know him moving from Marvel to DC, creating all these works, things like that. Sandman was one of the less successful uh, series he started up there. It only lasted seven issues, but the basic costume and circumstances we see in this issue of Sandman are almost identical to those of Simon and Kirby. So I went through, I read Sandman issue one, the, the, the 70s series, and it is one of the weirdest comics I've ever read. Like, even the cover is creepy and mysterious with the, you know, costumed Sandman leaping out, limbs akimbo toward the reader, followed by these, like, monochrome nightmarish creatures and machines. Uh, and then in the foreground, a child lies, like, sort of sleeping restlessly in his bed, maybe crying out. And while the Sandman is screaming, come see what weirdies I've dreamed for you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. His dialogue is plastered huge on the cover. <laughs> Can we, call, such a, can we call our listeners weirdies from now on? Oh, oh God, can we? Yes, please. Okay. That's great. Uh, you is in all caps, like just bolded. It's wonderful. And then like the introductory text in the issue, you know, they have a little banner on the first couple pages that they like, uh, you know, young Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider, like that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, here they have that, but it makes this like really strange pronouncement. It goes... Somewhere between heaven and earth, there is a place where dreams are monitored. That This is the domain of a legendary figure, eternal and immortal, who shares with man and beast all the secrets of the ages. He is the Sandman. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? What does sharing all the secrets of the ages with man and beast mean? I don't know. And I don't think we ever necessarily find out. But this is an important uh, sort of movement that we're seeing here from... You know, the original Sandman that we talked about before, Wesley Dodds, sort of uh, mystery man, noirish figure of the 30s and 40s, to this Sandman who's an immortal guardian of dream who lives in a world apart from ours. Kind of has more in common with Gaiman's Morpheus than, you know, with Wesley Dodds. Um, He also seems... So this Sandman also seems uniquely preoccupied with the nightmares of a young boy, young boy who was on the cover, named Jed, who lives in a lighthouse on Dolphin Island with his grandfather, Ezra Paulson. Wow. All of which was mentioned in this issue. Very cool. Yeah. Moreover, the Sandman is assisted by two captured nightmares, Brute and Glob, Designed exactly the same. Wow. Yeah, who he keeps imprisoned in his dream dome while not helping to bail him out of trouble. So, Brute and Glob seem to be treated as these kind of mischievous scamps who are generally well-intentioned, even though the Sandman does keep them as prisoners. And at one point, uh, they're watching... So, the Sandman has this, like, control room where he monitors dreams, and they're watching Jed fall off a cliff... 
in the real world, actually. Jed's not dreaming. He's actually falling off a cliff. And Brute and Glob start crying out, Let him fall, Sandman! Let him die! <laughs> like, wow. That seems harsh. <laughs> it's really weirdly dark at times. The rest of the story is absolutely bizarre. It's got young Jed having prophetic dreams and finding this strange living doll. It's like got this like green scaly skin and stuff. It's really weird looking. No, I don't like it. it was, yeah. No, no, I didn't like looking at it. And, and the doll was built by an escaped Japanese cyborg named General Electric who meets up <laughs> with a gang of Nazis, of course, that want to blow up the White House. After the introduction of Little Dreaming Jed and the Sandman, that's the story we head into. I need to read these. <laughs> I can see now why you could not go to the movie today. This makes total sense. You had so many comments to read. <laughs> yeah. So the Sandman, this Sandman, uses his sand pouches and hypnosonic whistle to defeat General Electric, along with some help from Brute and Glob. And the issue then ends with a page-long essay on the topic of dreams directed at, like, grade school readers. It's so weird. And that was one actually one of the complaints, like, about the book, why it ended so quick, was, like, people were like, this is really juvenile. But this little essay at the end, like, definitely made it. It includes lines like, dreams are nothing new. People have been dreaming about things since the beginning of time. Many songs, books, plays, and articles have been written about dreams. That's a good That's a kind of line, right? No, that was two-thirds of the way oh. through. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah, it's really weird, yeah. So the Sandman ends with issue seven, and he's pretty much forgotten about until he's reintroduced and retconned by Roy Thomas in the pages of Wonder Woman, issue 300 in 1982. All right. So in that issue, the Sandman returns to help Wonder Woman fight a nightmare, and then he hits on her in the creepiest way possible. No! Oh, yeah. He that tells her... girl! <laughs> he tells her he's been monitoring her dreams. No! <laughs> then implies that she needs a new boyfriend... And then explains it's normal for healthy young men to have erotic dreams. No, this, Sean, I hate this. <laughs> Sean, this is a family podcast. Uh... <laughs> this is a family comic book, presumably. So there it's revealed that this Sandman is a former dream researcher named Garrett Sanford, who invented a device capable of monitoring dreams and even entering into them. So when the United States president is trapped in a dream... Uh, Sanford is recruited to enter his dreams and rescue him, which he does, but he learns that he is now forever trapped in the dream dimension and can only leave for one hour at a time. So he appoints himself guardian of dreams and basically appears like once or twice more over the years, including, interestingly enough, a battle alongside the Justice League with our old friend, Dr. Dr. Destiny. Of course. Of mm -hmm. course. Oh. Yeah. Um, so this Sandman, so we have the we have the the Simon Kirby one who's never named, who's supposed to be this like immortal eternal guardian. You got 1982, retconned by Roy Thomas into like a regular dude with needs, apparently. Um <laughs> and <laughs> and then pretty much disappears. Um, kind of fades away into obscurity by the time that this costumed Sandman appears here in issue 11. But so approaching this at this point, even if you're familiar with the DC material, you have to be wondering, 
Is this the immortal Sandman of Simon and Kirby? The creepster Garrett Sanford Sandman? Or is it someone else entirely? And who the heck is Lyda? We'll need to wait till next issue to find out. I felt like you just wrapped up the podcast there. I think we're done. <laughs> Sean's like, I need to go to bed. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> and so all of that happened because Roderick Burgress uh, kidnapped Drew. <laughs> That's son of a gun. He just really wanted crossover episodes. That's really all it was. Mm. That's in the end. The, Roderick Burgess just really wanted crossover episodes. Uh, and speaking of crossing over, we have some amazing examples of camp performed by Hal, the housekeeper, in this issue, Ashley. We do. We So when I was rereading this issue, the first thing that hit me for the first time, honestly, and I don't know how it didn't hit me uh, until now, is that this is honestly a really interesting example, I think, of camp. And if you're not familiar with what camp is, you may have seen the sort of horrid attempts at camp at the Met Gala in 2019, because that was its theme, and everyone really attempted it, and I heavy air quotes on attempted. Mm. Um, but clearly didn't go too deep into understanding the themes that elements uh, and the, the sentiments regarding camp. I don't know how familiar either of you are with the idea of camp or campy art. I know what John Waters, that's about it. Okay. Yeah. That's just generally like for, for most of us, that's where it begins and ends. And that's totally admirable because that's excellent camp. Like that's, that's kind of peak camp. Um, where most go is with Susan Sontag's essay, Notes on Camp, which was uh, published in 1964. It's a really excellent essay. It's a short read. It's like 32 pages long. So if you have never read it and you're interested in art and uh, art theory, I strongly suggest you read it. It's also not too heady. It's just really, it's a really interesting discussion on something that's hard to pin down. Um, so I want to try to sort of distill it for you and then show you how it applies to this issue in particular. So camp itself as a style is really focused on artifice and exaggeration. It's an aesthetic exaggeration on the things we love. So it's style for style's sake. So the, the historic sort of um, source material, quote unquote, for camp was dandyism. So if you've ever seen a picture of Oscar Wilde or read any quotes by Oscar Wilde, he was like the epitome of a dandy. Um, and camp really came from that mentality because it was really focused on artifice, materiality, and style. Um, Wilde is noted for saying, in matters of great importance, the vital element is not sincerity, but style. And so that's really what camp is. It's a playful approach to that which everyone else takes seriously. Um, and so in Sontag's essay about camp, she, even though she says that Camp itself, uh, instead of writing a, a serious essay about it, because that would do it an injustice, um, it really necessitates a form of quote-unquote jottings. So she has 58 quote-unquote jottings about camp. And I've highlighted a few, and then I'm going to note which characters sort of like amplify those jottings, which I've kind of referenced as laws because Morpheus is really 
focused on fixated on the laws of his universe. So we're going to treat camp as if it's its own universe and see how he kind of fits into that. So the ones I've highlighted, so jotting number seven or rule number seven, all camp objects and persons contain a large element of artifice. Nothing in nature can be campy. So nothing natural, nothing that's sort of deemed authentic, quote unquote, is camp. So when you look at characters such as Barbie and Ken, they're described as being appallingly, terrifyingly normal. There's something extra about their normality that makes it unnaturally so. It's unsettling to the characters around them how normal they they are, as if they are playing at straightness, as if they are playing on suburban whiteness. There's this sort of artifice around them that is that is kind of goofy and amusing from the get-go, because even their names themselves, Barbie and Ken, they are the quintessential straight, heterosexual, like, cis white couple. So they really amplify that character. They really amplify that sort of jotting or that law. Number nine, as taste as persons, camp responds particularly to the markedly attentive attenuated and to the strongly exaggerated. So androgyny is really important in camp. And we see a lot of androgyny, not only in this issue, but throughout all issues of the Sandman. I mean, take, take a look at the endless, none of them apart from the one that we have yet to really know the deal about is particularly masculine or feminine. There's, there is a sort of look of androgyny about all of them to some degree. And obviously Desire is probably the most androgynous out of all of them, but there's still a sort of element of androgyny to all of the characters. And more so as we get into the more stylistic nature of Morpheus himself. Also, Campus sees everything in quotation marks. So it's this idea of a being playing a role. So you're never what you are. Again, authenticity isn't really a thing. It's more you are you are being an exaggerated form of yourself. So we see that in Hal. Uh, Hal's drag show, it's all musicals, all female protagonists. His show always opens with Hello Dolly, whose protagonist is a matchmaker who then matches three couples throughout the course of the musical and then herself to the rich man Horace in the end. So we see Hal being this odd sort of matchmaker and that he draws all these people into this house by probably just sheer charm and wit. Um, But also you see him sort of connect all these people, not matchmaking per se, but he connects people, he networks with people and gets them together in this really interesting way. Additionally, his, his, um, Drag show name Dolly Lamore is a play off of the name Dorothy Lamore, who was an actress best remembered for having appeared in the series of movies called The Road To, and it was The Road To, like various places, that were Mm. successful comedies starring Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. She played a lot of quote unquote exotic characters. So there was, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, skin tanning. She was the the actress in the sarong all the time. She was always the love interest, but the exotic love interest. Um, but it was all very like makeup, very ma- produced, lots of exotic sets, lots of dramatic costumes. She, she was just this big uh, personality in these characters and her appearance as Ula in and I'm sorry, guys, but the movie was called The Jungle Princess, uh, brought her to fame. And then you see her in this image of what was called the Sarong Queen. So we see 
attributions to that in Hal's character with the name Dolly Lamore and with these characters that he's pulling out, all the songs that he plays for Rose um, are all these really sort of campy musicals and campy love songs. Again, highlighting like extra femininity. Uh, so really fascinating character in himself. So the camp doesn't begin and end with Hal. It's really in, in a lot of these characters. Gilbert is another one where you wouldn't think camp, but camp is also really rooted in sentimentality and uh, nostalgia. And you see Gilbert nostalgic for something he's never experienced. So he has this like hyper understanding um, of, of medieval uh, mentalities and, and sentiments with regard to his relationships with particularly young women and wanting to protect them. And every, mm -hmm. every frame that you see him is a very dramatic, very bold gesture. Even when uh, she checks to see if she understands who he is correctly, when they first meet in that alleyway, uh, you see, you see him take his hat off and say indubitably, and it's this sort of, again, kind of like what we saw with Satan or Lucifer. We see with him this Vidal Sassoon commercial where his hair <laughs> is going back, and it's very posed. It's very posed. We see it again when he says he's going to go with her in the car. He's pulling his sword out. It's a very posed gesture, um, complete artifice, complete style, and also a little bit camp in that Oscar Wilde sense, a bit of a dandy. Um, so, and even when you hear about Gilbert for the first time, he's asking for a giant pencil to write on the ceiling, which is a reference to G.K. Chesterton's essay on lying in bed. So you got on camp, you've got on lying in bed, you're seeing this sort of like demonstration or performance of a, a historical figure or a writer. And Chesterton had a lot of interesting things to say, not only about writing on walls, but his hatred of wallpaper, which wallpaper can be camp as well, because again, it's style. So you see this tension in Gilbert in wanting to be true, but not quite achieving that because he can't, because he's not human. So it's kind of an interesting discussion on what is true and what is camp. I think Neil was saying that he liked the idea, um, and I feel like this is really, he liked the idea that a dream would not be creative enough to become mm -hmm an original person. So right. he would just make himself a person like someone he liked, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> which I think right. is great. And it's totally in the spirit of what you're saying. Right. No. And that's, that's, what's really lovely about it is he gets, he has all of the costuming and the props, right. But they're so extra and so sincere that it can't be anything but camp. So it's this true camp as opposed to this really self-aware, um, sort of overly serious camp because he's he's not he delights in so many things and we see that in Gilbert he kind of delights in what he's exploring he can't help but delight in it um, but that's part of what makes it camp um, what's also interesting though that you mention Gaiman's note about dreams not being able to be sort of more than what they are they can't be creative enough to be something or truly original is you get the Corinthian and he shows up in this issue. Every, every other character we kind of see from a, a third person view, we see from the outside. The Corinthian is the only character we see from his perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and in sort of reviewing all the characters in this issue, he's the only one necessarily in this issue that doesn't quite achieve camp apart from uh, jotting number 28 
Uh, camp is the attempt to do something extraordinary in the sense of being special, glamorous, or theatrical. We do see him uh, attempt theatricality at times, mm-hmm. but a lot of the time he's really just trying to be Morpheus in a lot of ways. He's trying to be on his own terms, but he's too self-serious to do so well and thus not particularly camp as well as us being from his perspective. So it takes you out of that enjoyment, sort of that theatrical sort of vibrant perspective and brings you entirely into an all too real perspective that is not the camp sort of mode. Um, so you you have this then positioning between Gilbert and the Corinthian and their two motives. Um, and hilariously, you know, Sean, last time we talked about an issue, you brought up uh, Ibsen and mm-hmm. the Doll's House, a Doll's House, the play. Well, Chesterton hated Ibsen's plays because uh, they were too um, too real. He, they were trying to get into like the uh, seedy underbelly of polite society, mm-hmm. and Chesterton felt like that was doing a disservice to how actual marital relations worked, and and thought that it was casting uh, a pallor on polite society in a way that was untrue. So again, you get this interesting discussion between two contemporaries, and now you've got Gilbert and the Corinthian attempting two different means, and you've got the Corinthian kind of demonstrating a very Ibsen-esque, or as Chesterton would say, an Ibsenite perspective on the world, and that it's very cynical, uh, and it's trying to highlight or reveal what humanity is actually like, quote-unquote. So it's an interesting discussion you have between these two characters and kind of who they're highlighting. And then we've got Morpheus. And Morpheus is so very self-serious that I would say that he is a true dandy uh, in that he he takes his world very seriously. Uh, his focus in this issue is to meet Brute and Gob, and he's being so incredibly dramatic about, quote-unquote, his law. Uh, the final pose at the end oh, of the yeah. issue is kind of Art Nouveau, which is camp, uh, and also is so focused on all of his artifacts. Sean, you mentioned how he's kind of preparing himself like a superhero. It's also very camp because it is focused on the artifice. It's focused on the outward appearance. It's focused on that style and the way he poses at the end, um, is so very camp because it's over stylized. He's very into how he's presenting himself because we're, we're still not entirely sure how, all of these artifacts actually work for his favor. It really is just for show in this case. And so it's a performance unto himself that he is the quote unquote true Sandman, much like all of these other characters are trying to present a certain way to one another, uh, which is a part of what makes it camp and essay and jottings. Yeah. I definitely, um, I feel like I know nothing about camp outside of people say, Oh, that was campy. Um, you know, that's that's all, that's all I got when it comes to <laughs> Yeah, there, it's, again, if you can read the essay, uh, it's it's really a very short read. Penguin um, published a version of it that went along with another one of her essays called On Co- One Culture and the New Sensibility. And it's just, it's really good. It's worth reading. Uh, but it also helps people kind of grasp what camp is because it's so elusive to people. And it does change with time. Whereas dandyism was really focused on the sort of aristocracy or aristocratic sensibility of like boredom and 
finding things distasteful, that sort of then evolved into this idea of camp being all about delight and being able to where dandyism would sniff at something and turn its nose and, and cover its face with a handkerchief. Camp would smell the same thing and, and find it hilarious and find pride and delight in the fact that it could you know, hold itself up to the stench. So that's how they're frequently compared is this it's, but it's all about artifacts. It's all about presentation. It's all about exaggeration, but exaggerating the things that you love already. So if you've watched another great example, I guess would be if you've watched the most recent season of the white Lotus, when one of the characters ends up going to the opera with this group of gay guys, they are all about camp. They're about the camp with regard to the opera. Opera can be very camp. Um, they're all about kind of, they're not, it, it's funny because on the outside, it looks like they're making fun of this woman that they've invited to go with them because she is an exaggerated character, but that's part about what they love about her. They talk about how she dresses and how delightful she is because of how exaggerated she is. Um, so if you're needing like a, a, a recent example of camp, if you watch the first season of White Lotus and focus on the rich woman that is... <laughs> left alone by her husband and then is adopted by a bunch of gay guys. That's an excellent example of camp. Excellent. I think that's like the fourth time someone has mentioned white Lotus to me in like the last week. So yeah, watch it. Finally Sean, watch, this. watch okay. it. I know people were all <laughs> about it. We have to start another podcast yep. just about the white Lotus. Yeah, people were all about it. Like at the office this week, they just wanted, they wanted someone to yeah. talk to about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Send them to me. I can't believe I've never read that. Uh, Susan Sontag essay, but I have at least one, Susan Sontag work up here somewhere behind me. Yeah. No, my bookshelf. She's so good. But, she's uh, so good. But yeah. definitely if you can get a hand, a copy, you should be able to. Don't worry, Sean, your, uh, your, your literary street cred is still good. We know you have a Susan Sontag <laughs> back there. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not. Well, I, I know Susan Sontag. I, I, I do, do not. <laughs> I have a Murphy bed behind me. That's all I have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the other reason why it's interesting uh, if I can just slide into my next topic here, Ben, without stepping on stepping on your your hosting toes, uh, <laughs> is talking about sort of artifice and style and Art Nouveau in particular. Um, oh, this is the one thing I, I knew to... about this about this issue. This is the one thing I knew. So I'm so excited you're going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, those really strange and very stylistically different moments where we're in Jed's dream world. You know, Mm -hmm. they look very different than the rest of the book. You've got these very bright, uh, soft colors, kind of, it's very rounded in a lot of ways. You've got a fixed perspective, right? So you're not seeing like different angles and and different, uh, you know, views over people's shoulders or uh, into corners or anything. Mm -hmm. It's, you're you're just pretty much staying still in one spot. And then of course you have uh, a very like, stilted dialogue like oh i cannot fly when i am awake and the the numbered uh panels that guide you through the page yeah what's that about why were they numbered is that like a thing they used to do that is a thing they used to do so what uh gaiman and dringenberg are doing here is sort of a pastiche of windsor mckay's uh, early 20th century comic strip, Little Little Nemo in Slumberland. Oh! Which I primarily know from the NES video game that I could never beat. Oh, yeah, because they, they did, like, an animated movie, mm-hmm. and they did, like, a Nintendo yep. game. Was it good? 
I think so. I'm probably going to watch a Let's Play after we're done recording tonight. Like, while I'm hanging out. So, All right. I feel like I remember seeing the ads for it in, like, Nintendo Power or something, but I never played it. And I didn't know what it was at the time. It wasn't until I... Honestly, I don't think it was until uh, grad school that I really spent much time with uh, Windsor McKay's work and realized how insanely brilliant it is. Hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, about him and sort of why he might be included here. So Windsor McKay was born in 1857 or 1866 or 1867. Uh, he doesn't he didn't know how old he or was. Or 1967. There were no, no records. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Not an ounce of narcissism to that guy. I don't know. His hometown had a lot of fires, and so his house burned down once, and so that might have been the only records. Oh. Uh, he was born in, like, Canada to... Like, he moved to the U.S. to Spring Lake, Michigan from Canada, so his birth record might be in Canada, might have burned down in Spring Lake, Michigan. I don't know. But, you know, legend has it, actually, that as a boy, he heard a story about one of the numerous fires in his town, right? And he suddenly picks up a nail off of the ground and etches his vision of the scene into the frost on a window pane. <laughs> I <Wow>. love this. <laughs> and there's another legend too. Another story tells of him hearing about um, a ship that sank in Lake Michigan, the SS Alpina. And he was so inspired by the story to draw this really detailed and dramatic illustration of the sinking ship that he he ran over to like a school chalkboard and drew it out and everyone thought it was so good they had like the local photographer like race across town and come and take a picture of it and we still have the picture to this day you know um it's pretty cool i i don't know i don't think the attribution has been definitively proven but that's the story about it anyway Hmm. but his dad not super into his drawing and sends him off to business school. Uh, but McKay, he keeps skipping school and heading into Detroit to do sketches and caricatures for money at like little, like, you know, penny museums and things like that. So eventually he makes his way to doing illustrations for newspapers and moves bit by bit into cartooning, which is then still, you know, a pretty new, uh, a, a pretty new art form in mass media. Uh, and he even develops a rivalry with, like, the early pioneer of the comic strip, Richard F. Outcult, the guy who created the Yellow Kid, which is, you know, that sort of first major American uh, comic strip character. So he starts doing this between, like, 1904 and 1906, and his most memorable comics creations are born during this time. And even though they all have these, like, very straightforward and repeated um I guess plots for lack of a better word, but it's basically just like a setup and a punchline. McKay always displays this formal inventiveness and playfulness um, that's both extremely sophisticated and extremely fun. I think, I don't know, I feel like a lot of this is is, uh, dovetailing nicely with the stuff that Ashley was talking about. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Little Sammy Sneeze uh, was this, (laughs) it was a six panel strip in which there'd be some delicate arrangements of items in a room. You know, it'd be like cakes and tea and linens or something. <laughs> and Sammy would be in there and he'd be starting to make like sneezy noises that would build and build across oh, the panels. God. And then until he sneezes so hard, the whole scene is transformed into this fantastic wreck. And then Sammy gets chased away. And that's how they would go. <laughs> that's amazing. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, but even with these simple setups, Nikkei used this like really fine detail and perspective and form to deliver an amazing sequence. One of the most famous strips from 1905 shows this like almost like pre-modernist interest in the formal structure of the comic strip. So Sammy's by himself, centered in the panel, with none of the usual surrounding like detail. He builds up for a sneeze, and when he releases it, the panel borders of the strip themselves shatter apart and crash down on Sammy. And so he just, in the last panel, he's just staring like directly out at the reader with like this look of surprise, and like the panel, the borders are just kind of arranged around him. I love <laughs> you know? that. It's, it's great. It's so clever. Um, but it's McKay's Little Nemo in Slumberland that stands as his masterpiece, a a strip so gorgeous and inventive that it is startling and groundbreaking to this day, much less in the early 20th century. Yeah, I had assumed, I'd assumed the comic was like from the 60s or 70s or 80s, like when I like, oh really? yeah, I mean, it just looks so, it looks so fresh. Yeah, yeah, it really does. It's, 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 it's just beautiful. Like he uses these rich, vibrant colors, these like thick inky lines, linear perspective, um, and, and an Art Nouveau style, so think like energetic, flowing, colorful, and a massive sense of scale to tell the story of Nemo, who's this little boy being summoned by the Dream King Morpheus to help his daughter, the princess, in Slumberland. Oh. And each night, Morpheus sends a different emissary to bring Nemo to Slumberland, and each night something goes wrong, causing Nemo to wake in his bed in fear. And it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to convey how just like staggeringly gorgeous these illustrations are just describing them um, and how deftly McKay plays with dream logic, like forcing these dizzying changes in perspective and scale and seizing on common dream fears like falling, drowning, disorientation. Um, in one strip, a giant turkey eats Nemo's house. I saw that's the one that I'm familiar you saw that one? with. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> So scary. Um, I've never yeah. been more afraid of a turkey in my life. <laughs> I actually have been more afraid of a turkey. I'll tell you all the story one day. Oh. Uh, <laughs> in, in in one of them, his bed grows these long, sinewy legs and carries him through the city. Um, and in another, a massive elephant that's, like, too big for the panel itself seems to be, like, pushing off the page towards the reader. It's just amazing work. Um, he was also a showman and a pioneer in early animation. Uh, he made a short film in 1911 in which he bets the audience that he can bring his drawings to life, right? And so we see him draw Nemo, and then we see him at work drawing, like, thousands of these Nemo drawings, and there's, like, big, like, big barrels of ink and big stacks of paper, and he's drawn away, and then, of course, we see the page with Nemo and the image begins to move uh, with this early, you know, basically like flipbook style animation. In 1917, he goes much further and he brings, he creates his famous cartoon, Gertie the Dinosaur, that he brings to the vaudeville stage, where he would project animation of this friendly trained dinosaur of his and have it do tricks at his command from the stage so he's timing his comments to the animation that's happening on the stage so it looks like he's telling Gertie to perform these tricks it's very cute I love this um, yeah and then for the big finish McKay would like step off the stage and at the same time appear 
uh, in animated form on the screen, and then Gertie would like pick him up in her mouth and carry him off. <laughs> it's, it, it's adorable. But back to Nemo, right? So in his earliest work on Nemo, McKay worked with the kind of like fixed perspective and regular numbered panels that Dringenberg draws in his pastiche of Little Nemo. So these features serve the story of the Sandman to indicate what that Jed's dreams are taking place somewhere other than our world or the dreaming, because we've already seen the dreaming in detail. And then this older style of comics art approaches the reader as, you know, more simple and colorful, you know, a child's dream, even though, as I've tried to explain, McKay's work is anything but simple. But the effect works in this comic, especially because Gaiman is able to kind of cleverly incorporate the framing device McKay uses, where each strip would end with Nemo waking up safely in his bed by his parents or grandparents. But of course, in our version, Jed wakes up not in his bed with his parents nearby, but to like a rat biting him. One last note on this topic that I thought was kind of serendipitous is that I was reading this essay on uh, McKay and early comic strips folks from Scott Bukotman, and it's talking about the influence of chronophotography on on the comic strip art form. So you ever see those like uh, Muybridge and Mary... Uh, photos of the horse in motion mm. and it's like a series of still yes, photos yeah. a very famous series of images that are what Bukatman calls like a temporal map like mapping out you know motion in time in a way that was extremely important to early comics artists who are trying to convey motion who are trying to convey time in space, right, mm. through panels on the page. Bukatman goes on to kind of make this interesting point about how the motion study photographs related to increasing regulation of movement in the industrial, you know, the era of industrial pr production, right? So it's about precision. It's about efficiency. It's Taylorism. It's Fordism. It's about making, you know, making the human machine perform all the right, most efficient motions to get the most productive, uh, you know, day out of the worker, right? And talking about how comics, you know, express this anxiety through these strange manipulations of the human form, these exaggerated manipulations of, you know, the human form. He says, yes, the 19th century draws to a close, the body in comics is increasingly depicted as deformed by the machineries of industrialism. Uh, a growing catalog of kinetic effects, including oscillating or blurred outlines, and of course motion lines conveyed a stronger sense of mute movement, but also conjured a body violently reacting to the power of technological might, uh, which I thought doesn't necessarily, it doesn't really relate here. It was just like an interesting thing for me to read until, interestingly enough, I came upon the page in this issue. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the two pages where Matthew comes in and steals the photograph yes. of Jed and flies out of Rose's window. And then you've got this like motion study series of Matthew yeah. flies away with that. the photograph. And I can't imagine that there's any, you know, that there was any 
direct connection to these, but it just seemed like a really interesting coincidence that made me happy to see. Yeah, no, I I love that, Sean. I that's a that's a great that's a great touch there, especially with the with the motion movement. In that motion, though, Ashley, we get Matthew, the introduction of Matthew, and I was wondering as we kind of first get this, what was your kind of impression of Dream having to use? you know, Matthew to kind of spy on Rose. I thought, man, Morpheus, like, what a hypocrite. (laughs) (laughs) Because you've, you've got Morpheus in that first part of Doll's House, where he's in the Doll's House, like, creepily checking in on the vortex he's got to check in on. And we've talked about his, like, creepy little smile and the twinkle in his eye. (laughs) Right? And now he's got Matthew doing his dirty work. And Matthew even says, I don't like doing this. This feels wrong. And all Morpheus can say is, well, she's a vortex. We got to deal with her. (laughs) And I'm just like, you know what? You were already there. Just stop sending your bird to do your work. You're not doing anything else but being mad and sort of trying to be diffident about everything. But no, go do your own work. Poor Matthew. I'm always very protective of Matthew. <laughs> and I'm just glad Matthew said something. Well, Ashley, I don't like how familiar are you with Matthew's background pre like, this series? Pre this series? Yeah. Nada. Zero. Zero for Ben as well. Zero percent. Okay, because like I have my assumptions, but like zero percent actual knowledge. You might you might be a little less sympathetic to him. Oh, all right. What do you all got right, for us? Go on. Guan then. Guan. <laughs> in the words of Brute. Well, I mean, okay. That, I get, like, there's an immediate charm to the character of Matthew because he's sort of like this everyman, like, that's new to working with Morpheus. And as readers, we identify with him because, like, mm-hmm. he can vocalize just how strange everything that's happening is. And we like him because he sort of accepts it with this good-natured kind of affability. Um, But Matthew the Raven started life as something and someone very, very different from the being we meet in the dreaming. Um, So, you know, we've already... We know that Gaiman's a master of taking pre-existing characters and finding, like, this new facet to them and kind of making them his own. Uh, We've seen that with John Dee, the Fates, Lucian, etc., and this is especially good for uh, for Matthew uh, because he began life as Lieutenant Matt Cable way back in 1972's Swamp Thing issue one by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. Hmm. Um, so it's good, probably good we're taking him in a different direction because in the 18 years between Matthew's introduction and his appearance here, things got very, very weird. Go on. Okay, before I get into that, I'll just note that Neil Gaiman doesn't care if you know any of the background to this character, and you listeners, your experience with this book won't be dulled one bit if you never knew any more than this series tells you about Matthew. It's perfectly fine. If you happen to know, it's a fun connection to the rest of the DC universe and a lovely like second life for a character who went through a lot of stuff, a lot of dark stuff, but it's nothing that Neil's going to spell out for you directly and nothing you need to understand to enjoy. Hmm. But, you know, since it's a Sandman and Locked, I figured I'd go through it a little bit. Um, 
So, okay. Swamp Thing. We know Swamp Thing is a major influence on Sandman, both creatively for Neil Gaiman, artistically for Sam Keith, commercially for the series as a whole, opened up all these spaces for more mature fantasy and horror from DC Comics. Swamp Thing initially appears in House of Secrets 92 in 1971, Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson, and it's the story of Alex Olson, who's a scientist in the early 20th century whose lab is sabotaged by a jealous colleague, transforming him into the plant monster Swamp Thing. The art is gorgeous, story feels like an instant classic, and Swamp Thing is given a regular series off the success of that appearance. So, Ween and Wrightson update their Swamp Thing origin story for an ongoing series. Alex Olson becomes Alec Holland, and 1905 becomes the present day. Holland and his wife, trust me, this is all important background for Matthew. <laughs> Holland and his <laughs> wife are scientists working on a, quote, bio-restorative formula that has the potential to produce large-scale ecological and biological changes, which makes it, like, important national security-wise, I guess. And the first issue introduces the Hollands alongside Lieutenant Matt Cable, who's been assigned to protect the Hollands while they complete their research at a secluded barn near a swamp. So this Matthew is clearly a dedicated guy, um, but he's a little gruff and pretty intense. Like, at one point, he tells the Hollands that they are commodities to be bought, sold, or traded by whoever can manage to own them. And that there are... Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> he's, he's kind of a dick. Um, and that there are people who would rather see them dead than see their formula in their enemy's hands and things like that. And ultimately... Though you get the sense that Cable is not so much trying to scare them as he is trying to, like, impress on them the importance of taking the threats against them seriously. Um, his words, yeah, prove auspicious when Holland, you know, he re repeatedly refuses to give his formula to this, like, shadowy criminal cartel, and they end up bombing his lab of course, and the resultant interaction with the formula transforms him into the monster in Swamp Thing. But of course, Cable doesn't know this. So to his thinking, it's the Swamp Thing that killed Alec Holland. Then, to make matters worse, the cartel returns when Alec's wife Linda continues her research, and the cartel kills her. So Swamp Thing shows up, gets revenge on her murders, and mourns over the body of his wife. But of course, it's at this second that Cable shows up and just sees, like, Swampy holding Linda's body and, of course, assumes that Swamp Thing has killed both Hollands right under his oh. nose. Oh. Yeah. So he swears revenge, and that becomes the dynamic of the series with um, Matthew hunting the misunderstood monster and kind of going back between back and forth between thinking, like, he's been wrong about Swamp Thing because Swamp Thing does all this nice stuff, and then, like, also wanting revenge. Um, over the course of their adventures, Cable starts working with Abigail Arcane, the series' other lead and niece of Anton Arcane, Swamp Thing's main antagonist. Eventually, Matt and Abby mistakenly think Swamp Thing has been destroyed and they move on with their lives. So that all sounds pretty standard for comics so far, but here's where it gets weird because... On a long enough timeline with enough creative voices participating, just about anything that can happen to a character will happen, uh, for better or worse. And things get worse for Matthew Cable pretty quick. So, 
The new Swamp Thing series starts in 1982, and the new writer, Martin Pascoe, brings Abigail and Matthew back into the series. And now they're married. Which is great, except what's not so great is that Matthew is now kind of like an alcoholic and terrible husband. Mm -hmm. Got it. But it's comics. So the reason he's such a booze hound is that he's been experimented on and given the ability to manipulate matter with his thoughts. And this power he has is driving him nuts. And he uses the booze to cope. Yes. So then Alan Moore takes over the series and he drives Matt to darker and darker places while Abby is brought closer to Swamp Thing. So there's these disturbing sequences oh, no. where, okay. like, Abigail is off, like, frolicking in the swamp with Swamp Thing, and Matthew's, like, sitting there drunk by himself and making little Abbies out of thin air who are dancing for him in lingerie. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so eventually he hits bottom when he gets in a drunk driving accident and lies mangled in a burning wreck on the road. There... The spirit of Anton Arcane, remember Swamp Thing's main antagonist, inhabiting the body of a fly, offers to make a deal with him to save his life in exchange for Matt giving up control of his body to Arcane. So, now we're getting into pretty disturbing territory, since Arcane has, like, Matthew's immense power, and he's also uh, secretly in his body, and that body is his niece's husband. Eventually... Arcane reveals himself, kills Abby, and fights Swamp Thing. So during this fight, Matthew is able to reassert himself and drive Arcane from his body, allowing Swamp Thing to defeat him, even though Matt returns to kind of being as injured as he was right after that car wreck, because Mm. Arcane's power is no longer uh, holding him together. So with the last of his power, Matthew brings Abby's body back to life, just before he falls into a coma. Just the body, though. Swamp Thing still has to go to hell and free her captured soul after that, but that's a separate story. So, for the next few dozen issues, Matthew is in a coma while Abby is, like, occasionally visiting him. And the thing is, she's got to pay all the hospital bills. uh, And when that becomes overwhelming, Abby agrees to allow Matthew to be experimented on to pay for his care. This is why we need single payer. Oh, my goodness. Yep. But when she sees what the experiments have done to his body, because he's all, like, desiccated and, like, deformed at that point, she decides to pull the plug on him and end his life. Abby! (laughs) However, he actually wakes up at the last second to spare her the pain of that act and disconnects his own life support. Which marks the end of Lieutenant Matthew Cable. But (laughs) here's the thing. While comatose, Matthew's actually been hanging out in the dreaming with Olmorpheus. It's one oh, of Morphe. the yeah. It's one of the earliest appearances of our Sandman outside his own book. I never even knew it existed until I started researching for this. It's a short appearance, but Morpheus implies that Matthew, uh, while he's been in the dreaming, he's been like trapped in this cave that he's got to like find his way out of. And when he does, he meets Morpheus and Morpheus sort of implies that he's overcome his demons while going through this ordeal in the dreaming and that he might have more work yet to do. And that's the last time we see him. 
uh, in his human form until this issue when he returns as Matthew the Raven. <sighs> so we're going to pitch it back over to our correspondent on the ground, Ashley, to get her feedback on that story. <laughs> yeah, so I know that that was supposed to make me dislike him a little bit, but it endeared me to him a little bit more because he's a flawed character that's been redeemed and is now doing relatively maybe questionable, but generally good work. Yeah, I mean, that's like... I don't hate that. Well, good. I hate, I hate the drunken like lingerie dancing bit, <laughs> but like other than that, you know, like interesting character. Yes, very interesting. I, thought it was gonna be, I was braced for way worse. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was more using it as a segue than <laughs> than necessarily trying to turn you against Matthew. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's come back from uh, being through some through through some stuff, you know. Well, we're gonna have to go re-listen to all that because it was quite a lot, and we'll be right back. <laughs> and we're back, wrapping up as we always do with our favorite panels and favorite non-Sandman characters. Uh, according to the outline, I am first, so I am going to pick the panel that Sean talked about earlier that ends this issue, where <laughs> Sandman looks like a total bamf as he's all dressed up <laughs> super campy. I think that's a definite, I think that's camp, right? Maybe? Maybe I learned something this episode? I, mean, I, I find delight in it in a way that I don't think Morpheus would appreciate. I feel like Morpheus is taking himself too Correct. seriously. But for the reader, that's what makes it camp because it just, I mean, look at it's it. It's so he's framed. Good. It really is. And he's like, he's like holding on to like the, the door jam, you know, which is like a pose <laughs> that I would do in like college. If you're like trying to show off your muscles, you know what I mean? And it's like, yep, bro, uh -huh. there's, you're talking to Lucian. Like, I don't understand. Like, What's going on? <laughs> I love how much higher his flames are than normal. Like, oh, usually they're yes! just around He's the base pissed. of the coat. And yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's totally. like it's like the matter Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets, and, like, the matter Morpheus gets, like, the higher up his flames go. And That's just beautiful. to talk about colors, uh, that is what mine looks like. I'll try to remember to put this in the Discord, but he has a uh, red flame cape with purple at the bottom and a purple background. Wow. That is yeah. different than ours. It is different. Uh, all right. Next is Ashley. What's your favorite panel this week? Okay. Okay. So I, I do have a favorite panel, but I do have a question about a different panel for Sean, just because I we'll need to it. know if this was we'll intentional or not. Okay. Uh, so the when Jed is waking up from the... Uh, from the verbal gerbil saga. Yeah. And he's, you know, the rat's biting his face and he throws it and you see his arm throwing the rat. But then also you see that larger panel like behind all of this where he's crouched against the wall, but you see the shadow of like the radiator or the boiler, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. It looks like the, the shadow of his arm having tossed the rat nearly looks connected to the shadow of the boiler so it almost looks like a monster itself yeah that's like looming over him do you know if that's intentional or if i'm just like reading too much into it oh no i feel like that's probably definitely intentional right it's like we mm -hmm. talked yeah. about how much dringenberg was into like 
German expressionism and silent film and things like that. And that's what it felt like. And those exaggerated, sort of canted shadows like that, I think are like right in line with, I didn't even notice that, but yeah, I think that's right in line with Drangenberg's aesthetic. Okay, cool. Because I kept coming back to it and I was like, it looks like a monster looming over him. I didn't know if Xylenol screwed that up too. (laughs) But my favorite panel, truly, uh, is when Hal bursts into Rose's room dressed for his show. Yes. Yes. And you see the panel where he's in front of the Cure poster. He's got his leg propped up on that side table. And... He says, but if Broadway baby goes, then so do I, asshole. <laughs> like that's, that is, this is what I'm talking about when it, when it comes to camp. This is like yes, perfectly yes. campy. You see the ultra femininity, not only in the pose, but in the dress, the costuming. It almost looks like a cover of one of those romance comics I talked about so many episodes ago. The, the, mm. ex, the exclamation, the drama, the, the, the heightened, uh, exaggerated sort of distress. Um, also, interesting fact, there is some discussion about post-rock and post-punk being a form of camp. Huh. So the Cure poster being in the background there does also kind of emphasize that discussion on camp, especially Boys Don't Cry. And then it also just being Boys Don't Cry while Hal is in fact dressed as a woman crying. Um, even if not truly crying, but like crying dramatically as a performance of of this frustration against Mitzi. It's just, to me, it's like a perfectly composed shot. Yeah. Like, I really do adore this panel. That's that's great. I love that choice. All right, Sean, what do you got? Okay, for my choice, I think I'm going to go with uh, two pages before the final page of the issue, Ben's choice. I'm going to go for the face-off between the Sandman, Jed, and Dr. Lobster. <laughs> I I love everything about this. I love little little Jed with his little outfit. Um, I love that the Sandman is is dramatically and forcefully using his whistle. And I love poor Dr. Lobster's, like, timid, uh, like, oh, not in the face sort of posture there. Mm-hmm. And his mm-hmm. his monochrome, uh, weird, caped, you know, figure there. I, I it, it just was so much fun to look at. Do you know, is Dr. Lobster an actual comic book character? Or is that just one they made up for this issue? I have no idea on that one. That's one I, I meant to look up, and I didn't. Could be, could be. I, like, there's very few. I think usually when there's references like this, they are pulling from something. But yeah, I'm not sure. It's in just this changed. One. Yeah, really... It's changed the song "Rock Lobster" for me. <laughs> Doc Lobster. I mean, Doctor Lobster is a musical artist. So really, I am really so much this episode. I'm looking at it right here. There's a band called Dr. Lobster. I'm going down some really weird stuff. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to back away. I'm on the Torico wiki and I'm just going to back out of that. Uh, Sean, who are you picking this week for your favorite character? I almost want to keep going with Dr. Lobster, but I already talked about him. So I'm uh, after all the time I spent with Matthew, I'm going to have to go with Matthew. Like I, I like, a. I love I love his attitude and I love his that he's the one sort of character in this who 
gets to see the full scope of all the weirdness going on. And it's just kind of like, huh, yeah, this is pretty weird, but okay, got a job to do. All right, see ya, you know? Um, I think Gaiman immediately had a sense mm. of his voice. Yeah. And it's just so endearing. For sure. Uh, Ashley, coming back around to you. What do you got? Okay, so mine had been Matthew, especially after that whole like explanation. But no, no, no. It's fair there. Enough, there are so enough. many good characters to pull from. So many good characters to pull from. I think in this case, I'll go with Hal, uh, because after all my discussion on camp, I would say that additionally, he seems to be the one that knows himself the best. Uh, and demonstrates the most maturity in this issue because even as Barbie and Ken are asking him if he's going to be uh, performing that night because Ken's mother is coming to visit, I feel like that would have been a really understandable opportunity to get ticked off at his tenants for being as, as rude as to suggest that he don't do something he loves because their mom is visiting. Mm. Um, but instead he's incredibly gracious about it. And I think that's, in, that's, that's just a really lovely moment, um, in the way he handles all of the oddballs in his house. Uh, and just generally, I think he's a great character. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and for mine, I will go with, I'll go with Gilbert's, um, makes an incredible introduction uh, as Ashley pointed out for us, super campy, uh, Chesterton vibes from here until tomorrow. And, um, I, I just think he's, uh, he's a great character that we're going to see quite a bit more of in the next few issues. And there you have it. That was issue 11 moving in part two of the doll's house. So Sean kind of took us on a few different adventures looking at how many sand men there have been throughout the years and which one is the potential definitive one and which one is our Sandman and is it one of the ones from the past. He then had us take a little jaunt as we looked at Windsor McKay and his influential comic Little Nemo in Slumberland and all the other pioneering illustration and comic work that he did in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Ashley then used Susan Sondheim's notes on camp to open up the different ideas of what camp is, the jottings or laws of camp, and how some of the many characters that we meet in this issue help to define or be examples of those jottings. And lastly, we took a look at a brand new character for us in the comic, and that is Matthew the Raven. Sean gave us an excellent deep dive into who Matthew the Raven was and how he came to be in the dreaming. And Ashley let us know that despite all of that, she is still very endeared to Matthew and will probably try to protect him at least a little bit if he ever came into harm's way, but probably wouldn't sacrifice herself for him. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.